Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, where we center conversations on reproductive justice and activism. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Black Feminist Rants. We have a really good episode lined up. Of course, we're going to be talking about Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. But before we get into that and to my amazing guest speaker for today, Erin Grant, I just want to give out a quick reminder, please, if you have not yet, please fill out the BFR audience survey. My birthday is literally December 19th and that's all I want for my birthday from you all. It's just please, everyone who listens to the episode, please fill out the survey. That's all I want. Okay. So if you're really tuned into the reproductive justice movement, then of course you already know, last week the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case. And honestly, if you're not that tuned in, you're probably thinking, wasn't there just a Supreme Court case like last year? Like what's happening? Literally, what is happening? Like every, like there's so many anti-abortion laws that are being brought to the courts. It's, I would say it's getting ridiculous, but it's, it's been ridiculous for a really long time. So first I'm gonna give some brief background information to the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case. And then we're gonna jump into our interview with Aaron Grant, who is the deputy director of the Abortion Care Network. So the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court case was brought on by reproductive justice advocates and abortion advocates in Mississippi who opposed Mississippi's 2018 anti-abortion law. Now the law in question bans abortions after 15 weeks, which we know is very ridiculous which is the point of these anti-abortion laws they're not trying to you know make abortion quote unquote more safe because abortion is one of the safest procedures but instead they're just trying to restrict people's access and as we know anti-abortionists will use any excuse they can to try to restrict abortion whether that's the health of the fetus the health of the mother or the birthing person um and so in this case we see the use of the term viability which is a time when the fetus can theoretically exist on its own without the womb um outside of the womb um and this is not a medical term this is a legal term um so we're not even listening to science and medical providers when we're coming up with these anti-abortion restrictions because again it's not about health and science it's about controlling people's bodies um but even so uh, planned parenthood versus casey asserts that any law that restricts abortions before the viability of a fetus which is usually 20 to 24 weeks is unconstitutional so So this Mississippi law doesn't even need to be debated. They don't need oral arguments, but this is really a reflection of the times that we we are in and how pervasive this anti-abortion movement has become and how many anti-abortionists have packed the courts. So enough of the rambling, enough of my opinion. Let's hop right into the interview with Aaron Grant. Hello, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Black Feminist Rants. Um, Just to start us off, can you introduce us with your name, your pronouns, your title, or anything that you want to share with the audience? Yeah. Hi, I'm Erin Grant. Um, I use they and them pronouns, and I'm the Deputy Director for Abortion Care Network. Um, And something that I want this audience to know is that I'm a fan. Um, Black Feminist Rants is just innovative and something that's really needed right now. And so um, I'm excited to be here (laughs) just to talk and connect and and rant. Thank you so much um, for your kind words and for all the work that you do to secure abortion access for people nationwide. Um, So I'm going to hop right into the questions. Um, So as we know, the Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization case has been hailed the most important case since Roe v. Wade. So can you speak to how the outcome of this case will impact abortion access for people nationwide as well as specifically in the South? Yeah, I think that is important to say that abortion access um, and connecting it to Roe v. Wade is legally you know, important. But when you say like how it impacts the South, like that this is the conditions of the South currently. 
Today we're talking and Texas has yet to repeal SB8. Um, and so how how is that possible with Roe not being struck down? How is that possible? So I do want to say that, you know, this is a huge case. This threatens the very uh, precedent and the very like foundation of the ability to access abortion. Um, but right now we don't have access. Um, many people are, are in areas of the country or um, experiencing different barriers that make it so that that, that abortion access has never been in, within their reach. Um, and so, you know, I like to say that Roe is, you know, not the ceiling, it's the floor um, and the floor is coming out from underneath us. So uh, I think we know that there's several states that rely on one single abortion clinic or rely on a single provider or single site of service. And so um, this is actually our reality, but this case threatens the entire kind of mid-south east, southwest east kind of region where we've seen not only abortion become, you know, the primary thing that's moving through state house, but also voting restrictions and anti-transgender laws and bills. Um, and also we've seen, you know, a gross increase in the criminalization of pregnant people and the, the steps that the government takes also when people are in customs or immigration care, um, be that sterilization or, or forced pregnancy. So it's been kind of a wild ride over the last three years. And when we look back at Roe, it's, it's just not protecting us. Wow, you just said so much. I love how you brought reproductive justice fully into the space, talking about voting restrictions, anti-transgender laws, criminalization of pregnant people. Like you really just brought repro justice into the space where we're talking about abortion, which is so important. So thank you so much for that. And I love how you stated Roe is not um, the ceiling, it's the floor. There are so many people who can't access abortion. I actually had a friend a couple weeks ago reach out to me on behalf of her friend who um, is a Spanish speaking who was six months pregnant and couldn't get an abortion because of language barriers and just, you know, financial barriers and just all of these things that just kind of were in the way of them getting the care that they needed. And, you know, being at six months, it's like a dire situation for them um, and had to go out of state. And so there's, even though we have Roe and abortion is technically, you know, legal in Louisiana, there are so many barriers that that person was not able to access care. So I definitely feel what you're saying about it being the, the floor and not the ceiling. Um, so thank you for, for bringing that into the space. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. I think it's important for us to just continue to remind everyone um, that, you know, no matter kind of what the circumstance is, people are pushed out of care. And just because you said what you said, I just have to say that, you know, I'm really proud to be at ACN because when people are seeking abortion care and later gestation, it's a pretty high chance that you're going to end up in in the care of an independent abortion provider and we know now that if you're over uh you know 26 weeks that you're 100 percent going to end up in the clinical care of an independent abortion provider so i hope that your friend's story continues their journey continues um and also i hope that we were able to provide them care yes definitely and thank you for bringing that up about the independent health um clinics my next question was, when people think about abortion providers, they typically think of these really large national organizations such as Planned Parenthood, who do great work, but majority of people who seek abortion care receive their care at independent clinics. So can you talk to us about how important independent clinics are and the work that ACN does to support abortion clinics? Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of like 
going back to what you were saying, independent providers represent 25% of all of the abortion providers in this country, yet they provide the majority of care in this country. So, you know, we talk a lot about like what marginalization can look like, and this is really what it looks like. Um, Planned Parenthood does do great work. Um, and they offer reproductive health services and so many other things. But when it comes to procedural um, in clinic or medication abortion, they're they're not the ones providing the care. You know, I think that what we forget is that community care is a part of building healthier and sustainable futures. So having community funded, community run and community owned clinics that can partner with mutual aid like you know, patient support networks like Arc Southeast or partner with, you know, funds um, to be able to help their family, their neighbors, um, their sister, their brothers, their cousins access um, care is really important. But with independent clinics, often they're the only care in the community. So, you know, it's important to be able to connect the fact that when we talk about like campaigns, like keep our clinics, we're not just talking about, you know, liberating abortion, we're also talking about clinics that are providing abortion, miscarriage management, birthing um, support, fertility treatments, HIV support, sex education, gender affirming care. Um, they're often actually the, the first intimate medical exam that many people will have. And we only have 96 counties in the United States that have an abortion provider. So when we talk about who's going to be impacted, we're talking about people that are already experiencing the, the disgusting maternal mortality of this country. Um, the, the fact that people are not able to parent because they're, they're dying during childbirth. Or we're talking about people who are largely ignored when it comes to HIV care or largely um, put aside when it comes to addiction or services that would create healthier communities. So when I think about independent abortion providers and why I kind of decided to dig my heels in and stay here is because I really felt like it was an opportunity to honor healthcare workers, to honor the medical assistants, the pathologists, the people that answer phones, the folks that are, you know, just walking into places and helping people in their community just one-to-one. -one. Um, and these are small businesses. So as the pandemic has changed that care, you know, we've been able to see how our clinics in California stood up against wildfires or how our clinics in Houston were working to help people with blankets and get heat back on or in Louisiana that they were offering shelters. You know, like it's just, it's just incredible to work with community providers. So I think that that's, that's the big difference. They go further, they do more, um, but also they're like incredible like choices in Tennessee where they're doing midwifery and doing abortion. Wow, thank you. You shared so many gems, that was amazing. Um, and I love that you brought up ARC Southeast. I have a really good friend um, and mentor, Christian Adams, that's working there doing amazing work. This work is definitely like, there's so many overlaps and so many people in community doing really good work around reproductive justice and abortion access. Um, you just, you brought up so many points, birthing, miscarriage management, HIV, fertility, gender affirming care. Um, and so I love that it's all of that is situated within reproduction, right? Like we're not just focusing on abortion because I feel like sometimes that gets lost in these conversations where we only want to focus on abortion. And like, that is so important and pivotal, but also people's full reproductive lives are just as important in that conversation. So I'm really happy that you're um, bringing that up and centering that piece.
Yeah, I mean, I think that I want to say there's there's nothing wrong with being just an abortion clinic. I won't I won't you know hold Arkansas to the fact that they only have one abortion clinic. They're gonna be busy with abortion all the time, um, because of the restrictions, because of the separation, um, and we see that you know with how uh, Planned Parenthood has had to kind of juggle their model due to abortion restrictions. So the trap laws, the targeted restrictions against abortion providers have shuttered many clinics. So it's not that just, you know, independent clinics provide the majority of care. And so I'm really focused on how to keep these clinics in their communities, but everybody's closing, including Planned Parenthoods. And and also, you know, Jackson Women's Health is the, the plaintiff in the case. So if we lose the clinic, we lose the standing in the case. You feel me? Yes, that definitely puts it into perspective. Um, and yeah, in New Orleans, they built a Planned Parenthood that was um, built to provide abortions, but because of restrictions, they haven't for years been able to provide abortions in the city. So there's definitely many trap laws that, you know, restrict abortion clinics and they just keep closing down. I've seen um, like maps of Texas and just like across the South where there once were all these clinics and they just start to dwindle as restrictions um, just start to pop up more and more. Um, I had another question back to the Dobbs case um, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, regardless of the outcome of this case, we know that we will continue to see states attempt to restrict abortion access. What needs to be done to codify abortion access in the U.S. and ensure that the most marginalized people will always have access to care? Yeah, I think one thing that you know, we can get into the legal strategy if you really want, but there's also this, this huge cultural shift that has to happen. And, and that's why reproductive justice is so informative, is so innovative, is keeping us, you know, towards the light, um, as Amber Phillips would say, towards abundance, right? Like we need to be looking at less criminalization and it's not just an abortion. Um, we know that when this Dobbs case, however it kind of turns out that again, we'll still be possibly left with Texas having this wild law. Like we have to hold the fact that this is happening while we have Roe. Um, and so a good result would mean that we get back to trying to decriminalize abortion, right? Um, but actually when we sit with our whole selves, we realize that decriminalization of abortion um, really naming that any kind of bodily autonomy ban violates human rights. Um, looking at the fact that the, the United Nations has named that the United States is violating human rights at its core. Um, we're talking about culture change, right? That's like what ends up being the actual tool is starting to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of not providing young people the opportunity to learn about their bodies, to learn about reproduction, to learn about their health, um, to be in control of those decisions? What What is the driving factor here? Because when we look at the folks that maybe are working to criminalize abortion, we don't see them showing up um, for clean drinking water. We don't see them showing up for better education or lifting economic uh, issues in our country. And we know that people will always make the best decision for themselves, for their communities and for their families. And our job um, would hopefully always be, especially in the healthcare sector, to support them, right? To, to help them find that path. And so what we've been in in the last kind of 20 years is just a, an escalating criminalization of the people that seek abortion, the people that help um, folks who are having abortions, um, and then also a real kind of 
turning our backs towards the the connection between the the white supremacy um, and the domestic terrorism that lives in the anti-abortion movement, which has been deadly and violent. Um, and so I think that, you know, when we think about our future, we really have to think about what it means to sit in abortion as an abolition, uh, abolitionist issue, um, an issue of not seeing the loss of pregnancy as a punishment to people who can birth, um, and really what investment we're making in people that have families and that have children um, to make sure that they're living the healthiest lives that they can with the most options that they that are available to them. And I think that that's truly culture change work, but definitely naming the complexity of uh, the anti-abortion movement and white supremacy and kind of getting through the muck, honestly. Um, the truth of the matter is that fertility is not easy to come by. Um, for LGBTQAI folks, building a family is not easy to come by. Um, for folks that are Black, Indigenous, uh, keeping your family alive is not easy to come by. And so we're, we have to have a, a place where we say, okay, criminalization is not going to stop the fact that people are going to experience pregnancy loss. Um, humanization is going to make it so that people can be resilient and be abundant in pregnancy loss. Um, and pregnancy loss is natural. Um, and we're not going to treat people as other who experience pregnancy loss. I'm just learning so much from you, Erin. I love listening to you speak. You have so much brilliance and you just you just speak so much life into like these topics. So thank you so much. And I love how you brought up uh, the anti-choice people and how the anti-abortion people, excuse me, um, and how they try to take this morality road and just like act like they are, you know, better than thou and all these other things when they literally used to enact or still do enact violence on communities and just like acts of terrorism, as you stated. And then even people who uh, are anti-abortion and then have an abortion and then still live within this anti-abortion frame, just like how do we shift the culture around that and let people like kind of rid themselves of like this stigma that we have that pushes them towards anti-abortion. Yeah, I think that what you're getting to though is also like, why don't we have midwives? Why is midwifery illegal, right? Like we got to get to some of these questions, you know, why is it costing people or pushing people deeper into poverty to have childcare? We got to get there. We can't ignore it. So I think it's important to just be very honest that like the people who are working towards these complex questions are not people that are, um, harassing folks that are accessing medical care or using racial slurs or uh, misogyny to scare people away from care. So what you said is kind of like perfect to me. So I appreciate you bringing that into the space, which is that like, this is complex and we can't be afraid of that complexity, right? Definitely. Um, I also wanted to ask you about um, your experience at the abortion rally and the oral arguments yesterday. Can you just shed any light on how the experience was and just the energy um, of all the pro-abortion people that were in the room? Yeah, I feel excited um, because I feel encouraged. I feel encouraged by intersectionality. I feel encouraged by bringing things to uh, a place that's positive. I think that you know, individual decision, bodily autonomy um, is something to celebrate. I think people working in their communities to meet their community's needs without um, making it a punishment or suffering, you know, 
when we have these clinics that are just so compassionate, right? Like they're walking through gauntlets of things and experiencing things that normal people at their jobs in healthcare don't experience. And we as a society have made that okay for them to experience that level of harassment and violence. So yesterday was definitely difficult uh, at the rally because the anti-abortion movement is very, like I said, like violent and said really hard and gross things, things that are racialized, things that are misogynist, things that are are just difficult, but we are so positive that this is our space, right? That as folks who are working in this movement see justice on the horizon, that we we want to liberate ourselves. We don't want to be criminalized. We don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to bear that brunt anymore. And so hearing, you know, from Congress folks, hearing from folks that, especially because it was World AIDS Day yesterday, hearing from folks that are impacted by HIV, hearing, you know, from all different communities that we can do this, regardless of the courts, I think that's what I like walked away with is people are moving this culture and understanding that pregnancy happens, miscarriage happens, birthing happens, and abortion happens. And it could all be, from the words of Monica McLemore, it could all be different if we just met this with care. Um, and so I, I know that there's a lot to go. There's a lot to learn. We have old organizations that take up a lot of space, <laughs> but you know, we, we are we are slowly but surely moving this together and um so i just felt so honored to be there um and i just have to say like you know mississippi's not the one to play with so i hope that uh the world finds out you know uh nina nina wrote a song you know because uh we're here to meet this moment so i felt incredibly encouraged that's amazing. And that's it's great that people who maybe weren't able to attend or they're not as tuned into the um, reproductive justice movement can really see all like the radical love that everyone brings into the pro-abortion space and just the reproductive justice space and just show that this is a place of love and we don't use negative rhetoric like other spaces do. And this is like a place of care. So I hope people can really see that because it's very articulated well. Yeah, the rally is actually up on the Center for Reproductive Rights website and on Vimeo. So if folks want to like watch the like six hours, they can, but you could definitely hear that. Yeah, that the, the message is changing. So folks can check it out if they're, if they need a little boost. Definitely. Um, I went to the abortion rally for the June v. Medical Supreme Court case back in March 2020, and that's what really like skyrocketed me into the movement. I was like, this is a place I need to be in. There's so much love and support and just great work happening and just being able to listen to all the speakers and people share their abortion storytellers. So I definitely can attest to the fact of just like all of that love and care being in the room really does shift people, even as someone who's always been pro-abortion. It really just brought me closer into the movement. So I'm very grateful for those types of spaces and all the work that y'all do. And I know it can be draining and, you know, engaging with antis, but y'all just always show up and just speak for yourselves and for your communities and just really push us into the space that we need to be in. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, communities are gonna win um, after 
going through the pandemic and seeing how abortion clinics really kept going. You know, there is all the, all the states in the South that wanted to issue executive orders about abortion, but didn't want to help their people during a global pandemic. Texas took three special sessions during this global pandemic just to talk about abortion. But meanwhile, you know, their folks were freezing during a climate disaster. So I feel like we have, we have the people on our side. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely get sparked every time I get to share space with folks that are just knowing that this is generations of work and, and carrying that, that light from our ancestors who also did this work, right, without shame um, and made sure that people were healthy um, and knew that they were loved, right? I love, I love that. I feel like we've had this huge opportunity to lead with love. Um, and like you said, like just drop this negative rhetoric. Um, so gosh, what a, what a joy and what a blessing, what an honor to be able to serve at a time where we don't know if we're going to get free in this generation, but we can try like hell, right? Definitely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Erin, um, for all the work that you do and just all the, all the wisdom that you shared with me today. For people who are listening that want to support independent abortion clinics or ACN, what are ways that they can support um, the movement? Yeah, so ACN is super proud that we have a campaign called Keep Our Clinics. You can go to keepourclinics.org and donate to uh, our campaign and we use that money to help clinics with uh, different needs that they have. So they get to do things like get a new roof or um, support their staff uh, and uh, do like legal advocacy and things like that. Um, I always want people to know to support their local clinic. Um, if you're down for abortion, you should be giving to independent abortion providers. Um, and also don't forget about the funds. You know, a lot of our clinics rely on community members and mutual aid to be able to get patients um, to the facility and don't ever, ever, ever stop giving to folks like Jane Stu Process that works with young people. Don't ever stop giving to Indigenous Women's Rising. Um, don't ever stop giving, you know, to folks like Transgender Law Center or, you know, If, When, How, um, folks that are really taking this bigger, expansive chunk um, you know, I'm always down to like name drop. There's like other places besides ACN that that need your dollars. But I definitely know I like my job. I want to stay advocating. And so um, I want people to know that we're a network. And so if you're an independent provider and you're you're feeling isolated or you're feeling alone, I just always want you to know that you can sit with us um, and it might challenge your values at first, but we know that we're walking as Whole Women's Health says in the light. So uh, you can always sit with us if you're an independent provider. So come to our website and uh, join this network because we're ready. Thank you so much. Um, I definitely took notes of all the organizations you listed and I'm going to put them in the caption of the episode. But again, thank you so much for everything you shared. I genuinely learned so much from you. Um, so thank you so much for being here and all the work that you do. Thank you for having me. And again, I have to say that, you know, I'm I'm pretty shy. I don't I speak publicly, but I don't really like to do a lot of interviews and media. But I said yes as soon as I saw this. So um, I'm a fan, first and foremost. And like, just thank you and keep keep ranting. So that is a wrap. Aaron was so sweet. I'm so glad I had them on the podcast. Um, I learned so much. I already know y'all learned so much because I learned so much too. I know we all learned together, um, but definitely check the description down below and check out some of the links that you can donate to that Aaron mentioned. 
also support abortion care network i have them linked below and of course fill out the audience survey please fill out the audience survey um and if you haven't already follow bfr on instagram tiktok twitter so you can stay up to date also subscribe to our newsletter something new we got a newsletter um but thank y'all so much for your support and all the work that you do in community because i know y'all are out there doing amazing work uh, i'm just so glad to be back to recording episodes um so a new season is coming out in january see y'all later